Welcome to this week's issue of Riff Raff News, and this week we'll be taking a look at why interest rates might not have peaked. And we're also going to have a look at the small boats issue and see how that works out with regard to the European Convention. Yes, yeah, Sean. Well, well, this week uh, I'm back in the States. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lucky man. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And the rather surprising announcement from a, a guy called um, Chair Powell, who's the head of the US Federal Reserve, which is a little bit like our, our Bank of England, mm. uh, because he somewhat shocked the markets, at least, by saying he was prepared to step up the size and pace of interest rate rises to combat inflation, where all the talk and all the signs and all the signals since Christmas had been quite the opposite. Mm. Uh, and this had quite a negative impact on the S&P 500 at the early part of the week. There's been another impact, but we'll come on to that later. Right. And also our own FTSE. Uh, and it caused the dollar to strengthen against other countries. In fact, sterling fell almost a couple of percent on the day. Uh, mm. to about 1.18 uh, against the US dollar. Um, uh, and, and all this was happening because price growth surprisingly rose in the United States last month. And that's notwithstanding the Fed's relatively swift, and I say relatively because they should have moved faster, but relatively swift and aggressive stance on interest rates mm. uh, over the last few months. They've got an index, which is, um, <laughs> it's got a very snappy name, the Personal oh. Consumption Expenditure Index. Right, well, there's no acronym there, though. It's very disappointing. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, there isn't. Normally I've they, tried. They work for the acronym first, normally, and then fit in the name afterwards, don't they? Well, you should do. I mean, you could probably have something like price or something, couldn't you, if you worked yeah. hard enough on that. But anyway... Um, this is the preferred Fed inflation model, and that rose to 5.4% in January when a fall was expected. And if you will go back in previous months, it had been coming down. Now, Powell didn't say that rates would definitely go up. He just said that he was willing to take that sort of move if prices didn't fall back. And it's mm. what they call um, in in the UK the power of the eyebrow raise. So <laughs> so so no action, but uh, Chair Powell definitely raised an eyebrow. Right. Um, he said that ultimately the level of rate is likely to be higher than previously thought. So, you know, it, it, the writing is on the wall for um, rates to go higher across the pond. So it so sounds it, bizarre. Yeah. So, so no, it sounds bizarre no. at the moment, but. Um, is that a suggestion that the American economy is overheating then? Yeah, yes, it, yes, it is. Um, it, it, and why is that? Well, first of all, you've got the you, you've got the data, the actual price data, which we just mentioned, mm. but you've got um, payroll uh, data as well, and and really they're the same as the UK. They're you know they're, their job vacancies are very low. Mm. Uh, and the worry there is that causes wage inflation, which then causes yeah. price inflation, and it becomes this horrible spiral that we've seen in previous decades. Mm. I mean, the Fed itself meets later this month, and um, the traders are, are at it, as they say. Markets <laughs> are now pricing in a 50 basis points increase, half a percent. Mm. Um, uh, and they're saying that that likelihood is roughly the same as a 25 basis points increase in other words it's it's evens as to 
whether there's a small rise or a large rise. Mm. Uh, predictions were for a maximum rate of 5.1%. That's their, um, their, if you like, their bank rate um, from a target range of sort of four and three quarters of percent as it stands today. So again, the writing is on the wall for yeah. um, sort of more increases. Uh, more payroll and inflation data is being released in the coming days. And if these go the wrong way, I don't think there's any question that rates would go up. And so you think, well, why on earth am I back over in America again? Uh, why does all this matter? Well, whilst we don't follow, we don't track the dollar, we don't track the um, US bank rate uh, religiously, but there is obviously a link between US and UK interest rates. Mm. Our own monetary policy committee, which is um, the Bank of England, uh, that, uh, they meet on Thursday the 23rd of March which is a week tw- is it yeah. the 12 wise men or is it I can't remember now How well it's not necessarily men now Sean we've moved on a little bit so. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that 12 yeah. wise people <laughs> yeah it's, it's a fair number um, yeah. and they meet uh, well, in a couple of weeks but of course that's a week after Mr Hunt's budget which I'm sure we'll talk about next week um, and just a reminder, the UK bank rate is 4% from its, its historic low of 0.1% during the pandemic. Mm. Um, so you could only imagine that if the Fed bump up, then we mm. will almost be sure to follow. Uh, and why would they make that decision? Well, UK price inflation, the so-called CPI, if you've heard of that, yeah. Yeah. consumer price index, at least that's easier to say than the American one. It's still a staggering 8.8% year on year, down from 92 um, And and it, the, the headline is, oh, inflation's coming down, but it still means that things you're buying mm. are a lot more expensive than they were last year, and they will continue to be. They're not going to come down. No. Um, I think most of us have noticed that in just in our weekly shopping, haven't we, really, that things yeah. are, are, are going up quite considerably. Yeah, well, it's, it's everything, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, whether it's your council tax bill, your water bill, your mm. your shopping basket. Um, inflation is definitely stubborn, and uh, but secretly, I think if you say if you look at the corporate scenario, they, they they must be quite happy with how much willingness consumers have had have had sort of to pay these inflated prices. And you may have seen um, the snapshot figure out this morning that UK GDP has grown mm. a little bit in January. Three, uh, 0.3, isn't it, opposed yeah. to 0.1, which was but it, the But the fact is it hasn't fallen, and it's quite staggering no. that consumers are still able to purchase. I'm a bit baffled by it, if I'm honest, uh, mm. whether it's still the pandemic savings argument, mm-hmm. uh, whether the nation's still, or, or whether it's money under the bed, I, I don't know. Um, I think it is a release of unpent-up... Uh, spending power from the pandemic, mm. but also things like um, foreign holidays. I mean, people can now go on foreign holidays where yeah. where they couldn't before, and I think they're taking every opportunity to yeah. to do so. Um, so I, I, I'm surprised because the the American um, American growth is a lot. It, it's flown on a lot quicker than ours, hasn't it? At the end of the day, I think they've got. I forget what the figure was, but it's significantly better than ours in terms of... In what, terms their of growth. economic growth? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a much stronger yeah. economy, much more diverse. Yeah. And so energy, they have energy. 
That's well. the problem, isn't it, really, that we're, we're beholden effectively to follow them in terms of interest rate rises. Mm. But our economy, I appreciate what you're saying, that it's, it's performing marginally better than, than one would have expected. But if they start raising interest rates in line with the Fed, that might dampen down our economy altogether. Well, that's the whole idea, of course. The interest rates are supposed to dampen down demand, which causes prices to go down. Mm. Um, if we don't all go bankrupt, that's the only problem <laughs> it's, in the middle of it. It's, it's one thing dampening down demand, though, in the States, where they've got this, yeah. as you said, the device economy that is showing mm. significant growth, but it's another to kill off any sort of... Um, they need growth, don't they? They need they need a demand and they need growth to be able, in theory, to be able to provide an extra tax take. So it can't, I, I, it's double-edged sword, I guess, isn't it, really? It's not great. Um, the, so as I said, we, CPI is 8.8. The Bank of England forecast currently is inflation to get down to 4% from year-end. Um, so that would be good. But uh, it remains to be seen what our own inflation data will say. Um, but what we don't want is persistently high inflation as this destroys value mm. uh, for everything that you own, your savings, for all of us. And, and itself drives a higher interest rate and it becomes a vicious cycle um, and the sort of road to ruin, really. And it certainly impacts business investment, as we're seeing all the time with announcements being made. Mm. And our mortgages, our loans, if you have a car, um, on a PCP deal, interest rates affect that as well. People forget that. Yeah, I mean that that this PCP way of buying a car is truly the never never. It's probably mm. the never never never, <laughs> uh, and credit cards and so forth. So, you know, uh, all, all all I'm really saying in this segment is that we need to keep an eye on what's having happening in the states, and having thought that we were going to be looking at a downward trend in interest rates, hopefully in the not too distant future. I think they're going to stay higher for longer. So we're going to have a, have a look now at um, the controversy over the small boats. You'll have heard Suella Braverman and, um, and, and Rishi Sunak talking about the new legislation they're piloting, if you'll excuse the pun, through the House to try and tighten up. It's one of his, um, one of his five, um, five, not missions, no, missions was Kia, wasn't it? What are they called, guys? Priorities. Priorities, right. So to try and to stop the small boats, not just to yep. decrease the number of people that are coming across, but to actually stop them, which is going to be a bit of a tall order. But there's, there's a lot of froth and bubble and um, talks of blobs. You've heard her talk about <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yes, the blob, the email. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, that she didn't send, but it no, still came out of her office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, the civil service are part of the blob. Um, yeah. But I thought we'd have a look at the background to all this in terms of how it relates to international law and conventions that we as a nation have um, signed up to and obviously are expected to uphold because there's been a lot of talk, especially about, um, especially from backbench Tory MPs, the Brexit lot, the um, European Research Group about Britain having to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights to be able to implement uh, any legislation that will stop, as they call them, illegal immigrants coming across here and and, and clogging up our hotels and and uh, 
and obviously putting, as they see it, pressure on public services. Mm. So just to just to start off, really, with um, uh, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR, uh, has made a statement with regard to um, people fleeing. Uh, repression and and war in their own countries. I'll just read you that. There is, so in their view, there is no such thing as a bogus asylum seeker or an illegal asylum seeker. An asylum seeker or a person has entered into a legal process of refugee status determination. Everybody has a right to seek asylum in another country. People who don't qualify for protection as refugees will not receive refugee status and may be deported. But just because someone doesn't receive refugee status doesn't mean they are a bogus asylum seeker. So I guess this is there's discussion at the moment about illegal immigrants, isn't there? Well, under under the um, European Convention on Human Rights, there's there's there's, there's no if you're determining yourself as an asylum seeker, you can't be determined as an illegal immigrant and unless and until your application has been processed to decide okay. that you are an illegal immigrant. Um, Kofi Annan, you remember Kofi Annan? Oh, yeah, yeah. a UN guy, yeah. He was, yeah. I mean, he, he said, let us remember that a bogus asylum seeker is not equivalent to a criminal and that an unsuccessful asylum application is not equivalent to a bogus one. So effectively, you're saying just because you put in an applica- uh, you know, you you put in an application and you and it's been determined that you don't qualify, yeah. doesn't mean to say that you were bogus in the first place. It doesn't no. mean to say that you were trying to to undermine the system. So, uh, I mean, the European Convention on Human Rights was was drafted after the Second World War to try and avoid. Uh, the atrocities that took place in the lead-up to the Second World War. You, you remember that the... Well, you won't remember because you weren't around at the time, but in in terms of the, the history, there was the biggest movement of, of refugees during and prior to the Second World War in Europe that there has been in, in history. Um, and especially um, the Jews, obviously, leave, leaving Germany and moving across Europe. This was put in place really to ensure we didn't end up with the spectacle that we had prior to the Second World War, where there were, the example is, of, I don't know whether you've heard about the cruise ship that was sailing around the world with, no. with hundreds of, of Jewish people who were fleeing Nazi Germany who couldn't get in none of these countries who, who now profess to uphold human rights would let them in. Um, it was a dreadful situation, and and I think this is what these these elder statesmen who met after the Second World War in 1948. Mm. That's what it was all about. It was to avoid that sort of thing happening again, and to ensure that anybody who was legitimately fleeing from persecution or human rights abuses wouldn't be turned away to by any country that signed up to this accord. So. There, thereby, we have a position where the new legislation that the government are looking to bring in effectively treats everybody as an illegal immigrant, so a bogus asylum seeker. And the new legislation has it that they can all be deported to a safe third country 
where they can then apply for asylum, which is the Rwanda situation. So we're not giving them the opportunity to apply for asylum in this country to lay out their case uh, as a fleeing persecution. We're saying the moment you set foot on British soil, we're going to hoik you off somewhere else. Now, whether that be Rwanda, whether it be deporting it back to their country of origin, who they may consider to be safe in general. There's been a lot of talk, hasn't there? And I think we've discussed it here about Albania um, in the past. But because Albania, uh, in principle, is considered to be safe, it doesn't necessarily mean to say that the individual themselves, uh, uh, the individual themselves aren't facing persecution or discrimination in that country, which is why quite a high percentage of those women who have applied for asylum in this country from Albania have actually been accepted. So it's a, it's it's quite um it's quite a a difficult um, situation that we find ourselves in. So those people who think that we should just close the door and not take anybody else in effectively, um, they're they're talking about us ripping up our our signature, our our commitment to the European Convention on Human Rights. I don't know what your thoughts are on on that. Well, I've got thoughts at various levels, really, and it just is. It doesn't feel good mm. um, uh, ripping up um, the convention or withdrawing from it um, because of the history. Um, but if we look at if we look at the practicalities of what they're proposing, so what I heard is that if you arrive here illegally, a, aka small boat you'll be put in some form of detention centre and they're trying to sort of um, renovate these former RAF bases, aren't they? And and Mm. places like that. And then presumably go through some sort of process. No. Where... No, that's the whole point. But what's the point of the detention centre? Is that just so that they've got somewhere to go pro tem? They have to have somewhere to go until they can be... Okay. Um, until they can be, um, what is it, in the past. I mean, that's where we are as we stand at the moment. Um, they have the, they have, certain of them have the right to have an application processed in respect of applying yeah. for asylum. But under the new legislation that's coming in, that right is not going to be there. They will be deemed to have arrived in this country illegally. Okay. But this is the where I, mm. so they go to one of these former RAF bases or a hotel or, or whatever. Mm. But this idea that uh, we can then fly them to a safe third party country. Mm. Well, when you look at Rwanda, we talked about this on the previous pod. You look at the numbers. If I recall correctly, the Rwanda government said they can handle about 200, 200. people. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, okay. So let's just say Rwanda had two hundred. Who's going to have the other sixty-five thousand four hundred? Because mm. well, that's that that remains to be I, seen. Bit, I just don't understand. No, they're supposedly yeah. signing, which you know calls into question whether it's a serious policy in the first place. Um, now you can either it's either um, uh, to be able to be seen to be doing something that appears to be hard line 
um, which which will which will feed an agenda to suggest that they're but they're they're, they're also mm. they are talking about signing up agreements with other third countries, but they're never going to get to the point where they're going to be able to deal with forty six thousand. But the argument that's come across from that side is that the deterrent value of those agreements, the the, the threat that you might find yourself shipped off to wherever Rwanda or another third country will prevent people from trying to come over in the first place which um, I have my doubts I, I I can't see it and and if it's it'll have if it is deemed to have failed it'll have completely the reverse effect and it'll encourage people to um, uh, to think that they can come across the channel mm. I just think, I mean, it, there's a lot of talk around uh, uh, refugees as well. I don't know whether you know, but 72% of people who are deemed to be refugees settle in the country next to that which they've fled. So, yeah, I didn't you know. know. This idea that we're, and, and as, as a nation, we've taken far fewer refugees in this country than some of the no. other major countries in, in, in Europe. I noticed that today, as we speak, uh, there's a whole team gone across to Paris. Uh, James Cleverley's gone across, um, Sunak's across there, Suella Braverman is over there as well. So they've taken half the cabinet over to Paris to try and negotiate a new deal with Macron to try and mm. stop those people from crossing the channel he's also supposedly taken a wallet full of 200 million pounds which he wants to uh, which he wants to effectively give the french to tighten up restrictions on their side of the channel which again historically looking back on it hasn't worked very well up to date um macron is talking about a europe-wide accord to try and stop people leaving uh, well, not necessarily leaving their home countries, but um, getting across into the European Union, which again, I think, is something that can be very difficult. I think, as we've discussed off air, very difficult um, to police. So, I mean, sixty-four million dollar question, I guess, and I've got my own ideas. One is, how do you, how do you stop this stream of refugees? coming across not just Britain but coming across into Europe and what do you need to put in place to alleviate their their need to leave their home countries any ideas <laughs> the second question <laughs> I, I think it's just you, you, you'd have to have world order and peace wouldn't you mm. and no famine you know <laughs> I don't think that's but we didn't have this. We've had this sort of situation in terms of world order before, haven't we? In the in the sixties, yeah. I mean, we had you know Vietnam in the sixties. I appreciate geographically that's a bit further away, and we also had um, problems in in Europe as well. But we didn't have this influx of of um, refugees, did we? Or asylum seekers? No, no, we didn't. But I, I, I don't. I think the second part for me is just. Too, too big because you can't stop individuals being motivated to start that journey second thing being well how do you if they are motivated how do you restrict those who enter to those who we believe um, should be granted asylum mm. or the right to enter 
I think it's incredibly difficult. Um, do you not I, think, I actually, yeah. Sorry, I actually think that what, what we're trying to do on the French coast, I can see the logic in that. And what we'll never know is if that work wasn't taking place, whether the 60-odd thousand would be 100,000. You just no. don't know. If you're the if you're the French, what incentive do you have to stop refugees coming across the Channel to Britain? Uh, none really. No. Why? Why no. would I? If I were Macron, why would I be saying to my public, you know what? All these refugees that have fled these um, places where they're in in dreadful peril, will take on the burden of of housing them and 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 keeping them, rather than let them go across the Channel to to Britain. It's nonsense. I I I, I genuinely don't know. Other no. than the embarrassment of it, in that you know they 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 can't control their borders. No, in fact, it's even worse. Not only can they not control theirs, but they're ruining other countries. So, uh, so is this an issue then? Do you think of of um, ultimately uh, uh, in terms of the small boats? Is this an issue of not wanting to take illegal uh, immigrants as they would perceive them? So people who who if they followed through the whole process, wouldn't wouldn't qualify for asylum, or is this an issue of not wanting to take anybody anyway? I I think I can only say from my point of view, it would be the first. You know, I'd I'd want to take yeah people who deserved, needed, required asylum, but purely for the practicalities of. You know, a country that is already broken, and I'm talking about us. Mm. You know, you've only got to watch last night's um, dispatches program about the NHS to see how much trouble mm. our, 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 our public services are in. To suggest that we could easily um, handle 60, 70, 80, goodness knows how many thousand mm. of immigrants each year is is just it's just a pipe dream. It's daft. Um, so we do need to control it. So, so what's uh, your what's well, where your where I am, and and mm. you know, it may sound too simple. Is where I am is I think you need to improve the processing capability, mm. and you know really go at that. Except in the short term, you're going to have to have these, you know, hotel accommodation, mm. repurpose public buildings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera but process people really really quickly mm. and I do think it's right where legally we can to limit the number of appeals because I think some of the the gaming the legal legal gaming is ridiculous mm. and then you end up with a smaller number who are able to stay but swiftly um, deporting those who who don't have the right yeah. to be in this country so, so I think that's I, where I am yeah I mean do you know on that front in, uh, I how much we're spending on hotels a day at the moment? Uh, I'm, I'm, oh, well, I, I don't, but no, I, I, I I, I'm going to guess. Yeah. Oh, you're going to tell yeah, me? Okay. okay. Well, can, no, I, can, you, I guess? Guess. can I have a guess? Can I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from my experience, it's normally about 120 quid a night, uh, bed and breakfast. So I'm going to guess, wild guess, uh, 7 million. You're not far off. Five and a half million pounds a oh, day on bad. hotel accommodation. Um, okay. And, and I, I tend to agree with the, uh, virtually everything you've said albeit I'm not quite so sure I'd agree with the appeals um, uh, element of it because I think they ought to have to be able to, be able to run their course in terms of appeals. But Yeah, what, but this, some of them are getting multiple appeals and it just gets ridiculous. 
Yeah. Well, you yeah. had to change change the process then. I mean, that's not something that's necessarily mm. covered okay. by. But the, the, uh, <laughs> you were talking earlier about um, uh, you talked about the dispatches program. I don't know whether you saw Peston's program last night. Did you catch any? No. Of um, Suella Braverman was on that last night. Oh right. Um, and and they were talking about the um, applications uh, and and how how that stood in November with the number of civil servants that they're employing at the moment to deal with those um, applications. How many, uh, here's another quiz question for you, how oh, many yeah. would you say, how many, bearing in mind we have, at the moment we have 46,000 um, people hold up um, waiting okay. for applications. 46,000, yeah. Yeah, how many do you think they're dealing with a week at the moment? 46,000, mm. so they being the civil servants, yeah? Yeah, yeah. How many do you think? I'm going to say... Um... <laughs> this, this, was, this was November, bear in mind. Dealing with, does that mean concluding? Because dealing with could be thousands. Processing. So if you put processing. in an application for a loan, for example, you get to the end yeah. of the processing yeah. application. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to guess that... Um, this group are dealing with a week 500 a little bit lower 400 a little bit lower 200 no shall I put you out of your misery yeah one what one application a week they were dealing with in November what be what, the whole civil service the or whole, one person the, the, in the, the team that were dealing with the applications for one asylum week. seekers one a week Gosh, that's, yeah because um, she, when, when she was asked by Peston whether the situation had improved since November, uh, she wouldn't answer. He, she said, well, it has improved slightly. And he asked her, well, how many are you dealing with now? And she wouldn't, she wouldn't answer the question, which infers that maybe they're doing two a week um, at the moment. But that is, that is the problem that we one of the problems that we've got at the moment is and you'd think where they're spending 5.5 million pounds a day on hotels they'd be throwing money at the issue of employing enough people to be able to deal with the applications so that we could speed that on and get people because if people came over here and they knew within I mean that's another um, deterrence isn't it if they knew within two weeks for example that their process, their application would have been processed, and they'd be sent home, or they'd be sent to an. But a then you, you don't mind then if that becomes two months because people would appeal it. Well, two months is not. Wouldn't it? Some of them have been here for years, haven't they? Okay. So two months is not going to be a huge problem. But if you if you can turn it round in a reasonable period of time, it becomes a deterrence. You're not going to travel all the way across Europe for even if for two months, are you? In a in being put up in a in a shed effectively in Kent, um, you won't do it. But if you're here for a, a period of time and can even, you know, a lot of them, I don't know whether you knew this, but they're, a lot of these camps are, are they're, they're, they're open or these accommodations are open so they can they can disappear into the economy, yeah, which a lot I of didn't know that yeah. have done, um, then, then it becomes worthwhile to do so. I don't understand why they haven't put the money into that side of things. Why they're not, why they're not employing a lot more people to deal with, which is, well, you know. Perhaps it's a problem of getting the staff, which is a different pod, which we have talked about. Um, mm. Perhaps that's where previous civil servants could 
come out of retirement and help Sean. <laughs> <laughs> just saying, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I had to make it worth my while. But we'll, <laughs> but we'll have to keep an eye on that. I think there'll be there's there's a lot more to come, and no doubt there'll be a, a big announcement later in terms of the uh, uh, the the brotherly love and the entente cordiale between Monsieur Macron and um, Mr Sunak. So uh, that's uh, coming up later in the day, I'm sure. So in case you missed it, uh, Sean, I'd, I'd like to sort of start with. Um, news about HS2 which has emerged mm. over the last couple of days although some of this broke a week or so ago uh, and and I guess the headline is the costs of the um, the railway are spiralling due to inflation in construction costs I mean that's that's mm. the headline uh, yeah. but let's, let's go back a bit in time and what, what it is what it was supposed to link London Birmingham, Leeds, Manchester and Sheffield with trains travelling up to, get this, 248 miles per hour. Crikey. Uh, with also links to Heathrow and the Channel Channel Tunnel. So in theory, you could go from, say, Leeds to Paris in, in rapid, rapid time. Hmm. Uh, originally, 20 years ago, I think it was Cameron, was it? Cameron, yeah. Um the cost was thought to be about 32 33 billion pounds um so you know yeah. fair chunk of money but not eye-watering uh for a 20-year project so fast forward to 2014 and the heathrow link was scrapped uh, as was the plan to connect um britain with the continent at high speed so i'm afraid that that bit dust quite quickly <laughs> and um the speed was reduced as well, so we <laughs> stop it. We took fifty miles an hour off the maximum speed, so we're now unfortunately under the two hundred. It's now one hundred ninety-eight miles per hour. Right. And at that point, um, the cost was thought to be in the sort of seventy billion mark. So it had already gone up. Uh, so that was two thousand and fourteen, and in the period two thousand and fifteen to twenty, uh, the government did actually admit that um, the cost was spiralling uh, out of control despite scaling back the project. Um, and this was partly because, um, this was baffling, but partly because the construction companies, when they actually got into the detail and spades in the ground, mm. found that... <laughs> this isn't funny. I'll try to be serious. Ground conditions were poorer than first expected. <laughs> <laughs> this is this was a surprise apparently uh, so that didn't help um no. and by 2000 <laughs> 2020 you may remember under boris i think it was there was a go no go review love a good go uh, no review, the entire project yeah. to see if it would simply be scrapped but as the chair of that um, that group, um, he's quite rightly said, well, we've already spent £9 billion on this, so it's a yeah, bit yeah. weird not to let it go ahead. Um, but anyway, um, in 2021, uh, Johnson said that the Eastern Lake to Leeds would be indefinitely delayed, but would still happen. <laughs> sounds, sounds like a rail journey in general, doesn't it? Really? <laughs> it does sound like some of the messages uh, you, you get. You know. 
the next train to your destination <laughs> has been cancelled, but will leave at some point. That's basically what it's saying. Yeah. Um, so where are we now? Uh, the line, the re- most recent announcements over the last couple of days, uh, the line north of Birmingham to Crewe is right. delayed at least two years to 2036. That's, mm. And HS2 will not arrive in Manchester until 2040. <laughs> it's going to see us out. <laughs> so, when I read until 2040, I thought that meant 20 to 9, but no, it means, it means 2040. And if you're following all this, and Euston, which is going to be HS2's sparklingly new terminus in London is in doubt and that's also been pushed back to 2040 so the well yeah I I I read this yesterday myself that there's there's oh sorry I thought this was going to be no 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 there's some there's some station sort of piddling to London Lime which is to the east of London or something where you all trundle off to the new um the new underground link, don't you? The, the Queen Elizabeth line yep. now, until Paddington or Euston or wherever it is, as you say, Euston is up to scratch. Um, it all sounds very Heath Robinson, doesn't it? It sounds as though it's... Um, it, I, when you think back to when, when we were in our teens, when the French started their TGV, which they've now got all over, all over France, which is basically the same as... as that's all this. Um, if, as and when it finally starts running, it's all going to be about 60 years out of date, isn't it? Well, it feels that way. Um, and sceptics, I don't know who they might be, Sean. No. Sceptics think that the whole of HS2's northern expansion, in other words, beyond Birmingham, mm. will be entirely scrapped after the next general election. Can't think why they would wait until after that. No. Um, uh, some citing the change in flexible working having weakened the business case. <laughs> so, so nobody wants to use it now. It, well, only three out of five people who would have, because it's, it's now a three-day week, isn't it, for a lot of people yeah. working from home. Um, so rounding it off, it's obviously a severe money pit. There's no question about that. You know, if you think $32 billion has reached the latest forecast of $110 billion in 2020, mm. even and even after it was scaled back, uh, that dropped to 80 billion, but that's now 90 billion because of inflation and this stuff about the ground. Um, it's it's a disaster, really. Um, and if you go back to, I've never managed a project of this scale, but it, it's all about the poor foundations and a lot of the things that are now known were unknown. And also, um, there have been a whole host, as you can imagine, of objections from constituents in the localities where this thing would have Mm. uh, been severely disrupted but I just think if we think about that pod we did the other day about the success of the super sewer Mm. in in London and how how great that was I think this is just so sad because just imagine if this if this had have worked and we would have had London Birmingham Leeds Manchester Sheffield connected at high speed not necessarily 248 miles per hour but still high Mm. speed it would have been magnificent so, oh, and Heathrow and the Channel Tunnel. I'm, I'm just, I think it's really sad. but Disappointing, uh, yeah. Um, hopefully, at least the Birmingham bit will go ahead. Well, I know there's pressure, isn't there, from um, uh, the, the Northern Powerhouse um, group 
who are, who are really keen for it all still to go ahead. But as you quite rightly say, where the where the budget's going to come from now, given its explosion... Is well, if they can keep power housing until 2040, then uh, <laughs> we, we, we might get there. So, um, do you remember Boris Johnson? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, he's still kicking around. Do you want to hear what he... Well, you've probably seen what he's been up to. Um, uh, since he, he stepped down from uh, his role as Prime Minister uh, in September... He, he's made £3.7 million pounds, um, on, from speaking engagements. It's incredible. Which is a huge amount, isn't it? Which accounts for 85% of external pay for all MPs during wow. that period of time. So he's not, he's not short of a few bob. There's some, um, some questions been asked as to whether he's undertaking his parliamentary duties, however. <laughs> Because you know, you know, he represents Uxbridge, the good, yep. the good burghers of Uxbridge. Yeah. Well, uh, he's supposedly um, uh, spoken in the house sixteen times, which you may think, well, that's all right, sixteen times. I mean, there's a lot, sixteen times more than maybe most um, most yeah, MPs would have done. Yeah, but that is a, over a period of ten days. He's only been in the house ten days since September, which. Mm. Um, doesn't reflect very well on on his attendance and he's continuing obviously to draw his £84,000 salary as an MP and something I wasn't aware of that he also receives um, a six-figure annual allowance available to all former Prime Ministers. Yeah that's right because that was a lot of hoo-ha wasn't it whether Trust was going to get that. Mm. I thought it was I I don't know I assumed that it was a one-off payment I didn't realise that that it was going to be it has to be expensed. They don't get paid it, but it's right. for mani- for running a former prime minister's office. So I'm sure Boris Johnson would have a um, an institute or an office, and presumably that pays for all his flying around the world to make these speeches. I guess probably. But um, yeah, so I think um, it's quite interesting. And in addition to that, there's been a bit of a controversy. You've heard probably heard over the last few days about his. Um, his resignation honours list. Have you heard about <laughs> yes. that? That, that he's um, yeah, he's just... going to put Stanley, his old man Stanley, is going to going to be um, knighted supposedly, which uh, which is quite interesting. And uh, he's also talking about uh, the uh, ex editor of the Daily Mail, Paul Dacre, who mm-hmm. uh, I know he's um, been a strong Conservative supporter and and um, allegedly was put forward for. Um, for the, the same honour last year, but was turned down by the um, by the honours committee. So it'll be interesting. There's lots of other names apparently within, ostensibly within that list, which no doubt will come to light over the next few days. Which people are saying will prove controversial as well. But I'm I'm not at liberty to know what those are at the moment. We'll, we'll keep our eye on those and um, see how things pan out for. Well, the whole thing's a nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. It just is quite ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, there's a conflict of interest for for appointing direct family members. It, yeah, you can't. That can't possibly be right. No, it needs uh, a total shake up, doesn't it? I think the whole uh, the whole system. Just get rid of it, to be honest. Well, get rid of it, or it's uh, nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just think. Do we really need knights of the realm anymore? Well, who's going to protect the king in in when when 
we get invaded. You know, I thought Harry armor. could do that. He's he's had training, hasn't he? Harry, he's yeah. miles away. He's writing books <laughs> in California. Oh yeah, he's nowhere near. But uh, yeah, we'll um, we'll see where we go. Okay, well, um, Sean, this will cheer you up. Uh, mm. I'm just wondering if there might be a new banking crisis on the horizon. Uh. <laughs> we, we need another 2008, don't we? Yeah. Uh, but something which would have passed most people by, uh, but um, billions of pounds were wiped off the value of um, Britain's biggest lenders this morning and US banks uh, yesterday afternoon and i've just had a look actually it's continuing a little bit yeah. uh, after a small panic um, in the u.s banking sector spread to europe um, basically investors are spooked after a bank known as the silicon valley bank the clue is in the name mm. it's, it's a small american lender which focuses in the tech se sector okay um try saying uh, that they, when you've had a few yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we mean my zero percent. Yeah, uh, it, it warned that it had suffered a 1.8 billion loss following a fire sale of some of its U.S. Treasury bond portfolio. Right. Okay. Well, that that sounds a bit weird, but but why is that? We'll follow this through. Uh, but anyway, it now needs to go back to its shareholders, um, which is VC backed, so hmm. in private equity to raise 1.8 billion to to plug that hole. Yeah. So there's no question that it's in trouble. Uh, the question is how much. Um, and some of the bank's customers who are themselves startup companies are pulling their money out of the bank. So that that's the, the classic potential of, you know, running on the bank. So mm. that that's happening. And shares which are on the, the NASDAQ um, uh, uh, exchange are 60% down over the last few days. So, you know, there's, there's something going on here. Okay. And it's happened because at the peak of the tech boom, the bank put 91 billion of its deposits into long-dated bonds, which were deemed safe at the time. But because those bonds were bought when interest rates were quite low, ridiculously low, those bonds are not worth what they were and potentially worth 15 billion less uh, okay. because of the way um, interest rates have risen. In fact, what we were talking about earlier in the pod. And in fact, just as a by the by, the US banking industry as a whole is thought to be sitting on $620 billion of unrealized losses uh, oh, because of goodness. the bonds they hold. And that will be replicated across all banks because all banks have some form of bonds. Mm. that they invest in because they're considered inverted commas safe mm. um, so what's really going on is is not just concern about the Silicon Valley Bank but also that um, there may be effectively some sort of contagion across the mm. whole of the banking industry and it also affects insurance companies because they're big holders of bond portfolios it reminds me a little bit of some of the hoo-ha we had during the the trust quartering um, yeah. uh, period with pension funds. So uh, I'm not saying there's going to be a full-on sort of run on the banking sector. And this is a relatively niche bank uh, specialising in a relatively niche market in, in America. But FTSE was about 2% down this morning and the big banking groups were 3 or 4% down. 
but it's the sort of thing that has the potential mm. it's like to a spark, destroy confidence. It, Pardon? It's like the spark, really. It's it, made people examine what their what their holdings are, I guess, in or made banks examine what their yeah. investments are. Yeah, it's it's definitely the last thing we need at the moment, and hopefully it'll fizzle out and it'll just be one of these things that causes a panic mm. uh, and is a mere ripple uh, rather than a, a, a massive wave. But did, uh, did, did you say? Yeah. Forgive me. Uh, earlier, when yep. you were talking about this this bank in the first instance, did you yep. say this is a a large percentage of their investments are in bonds in in these? Uh, well, ninety-one billion. So, right. Yeah. And you don't know what the size of the. Do you know oh, forgive me. I don't know the, what yeah, the size no. of the capital. That's a good just, question. Just I, I can find out, but yeah, yeah I, but it's it's enough to have caused um, yeah um, the markets to mark the the price of the bank down. I, I understand. You know what you're saying in terms of um, bonds being considered generally to as a safe investment. Yeah. But that, that aside, surely one of the general rules of the financial institutions is to spread your investments across the board so that you're not too heavily invested in one particular element. So that, which is why I was curious as to what what percentage these bonds made up of the the, the, the bank in general. But ninety one. Well, of you know, course, their other. I mean, these are their assets. Their other assets will be their mm. their loans to. Yeah. to companies but the yeah. the US treasury bonds are the same as gilts mm. you know they considered rock solid yeah, and it's it's mm. it's a bit odd um if you if you buy a bond when interest rates are low and interest rates rise the value of that bond becomes less attractive mm. um and there's been a unique period in investing over the last two or three years as as bank rates have gone from a ridiculously low rate, almost zero, uh, and negative in some countries, to a more normal rate, and this is what's going on. So, do you think uh, the um, do you think the the in light of the concern that there might be, do you think the Fed would step in to support this bank to ensure to underwrite its losses or to? I'm thinking about what happened. It's not the same. I appreciate, but the in this country what seemed to start our issues was the collapse of northern rock wasn't it a small organization in the in the greater scheme of things um which then i mean it spread and got bigger and bigger and bigger i appreciate but do you think they'd want to ensure that this issue is cut nipped in the bud before it well it, they probably would further? but i think the first thing to say is that both in the us and in the uk and europe the general strength of bank balance sheets is 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 a, is a lot stronger than it was. Um, banks have to hold more capital now mm. uh, than they did before, significantly more. And and this will be the same, I'm sure, with the Silicon Valley banks. So although they've suffered some losses, yeah, it might be just that the value of the bank has been impacted as opposed to its viability. Mm. Do I think do I think that um, they would step in? I, I'm not sure they would. No. Um, they they might if it was retail in retail customers, mm, mm. but um, in yeah. this case it's it's not clear. Um, might, yeah, might just let the market decide. Might let the market decide. It, I I think the decision for um, the Fed, other regulators would be: would they support 
if this is an isolated case, would they support this bank uh, so as to avoid contagion mm. across the whole of the industry? But it's 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 funny how these things come along, and you you know most people would have not even read these this article, but um, it caught my eye just because it reminded me of what you've just said of the two thousand and eight scenario. Yeah. Okay, so um, just very briefly, tail off because we, we've nearly run our time. Um, I don't know whether you saw a piece the other day about um, Ben Wallace and reviewing the decision the government had previously made to cut the size of the British Army to yeah, 73,000 yeah. troops. Um, I was intrigued by this because there were comments made also by... Um, US generals warning that the UK is no longer considered to have a, a tier one military. Uh, and I wonder what a tier one military was in their view. And it would appear that they're suggesting that Britain can no longer field what they term a war fighting division. A war fighting division in American defence speak is, uh, uh, is 10 to 15,000 soldiers. Which even um, even though we ostensibly have got seventy three thousand, even after the cuts under arms, that you would have thought that we would have been able to field a ten to fifteen thousand soldiers in a in a war fighting division. I'm, I'm not knowledgeable enough to know whether a war fighting division uh, is frontline soldiers as opposed to ancillary um, support, because obviously there's people like the signals I guess and there's people mm. like the uh, uh, the the medical people within the army that don't necessarily sit on the front line um, but I thought that was quite worrying that they consider us to be in such a situation that we're no longer a, a, a tier one tier one military in in terms of our fighting abilities is also quite concerning when you look at it in the context of um, what's happening in Ukraine in terms of the number of soldiers on both sides that have been lost within the space of a year's worth of fighting. I assume that if we were to ever actually be in the position of going to war, that um, that we would have to conscript a huge amount of our, our young people to go and fight, you know, a voluntary army wouldn't hold, yeah. hold up in that situation. But quite concerning and, and, and an indication, I think, of how far our our, our armed services have been um, cut back on over the last 20, 30 years. It's quite quite frightening, really. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on that, whether you, you're you know, generally... Yeah, I think the, the end of the Cold War probably motivated um, uh, quite a few chancellors to sharpen their pencil... Mm. and use it as an opportunity to reduce investment in the armed forces. And I think it's a misstep, no pun intended, because mm. um, it, you know, your, your first duty, isn't it, of, of government is to keep your people safe. Yeah. And to ha I, know, I know it's difficult, and I know we're talking billions, not millions, but to have an army that's fit for purpose... Uh, as, as the as the first line of defence um, for non-conscripts, if you like, yeah. ready to defend um, unpredictable hostility, I think is essential. And uh, 
you know, whether everything you read at the moment and think of what you just said, but also in terms of our ability to procure reliable equipment Mm. um, and our, our, our sort of fighting capability in general would suggest that if we did uh, suffer an unprovoked attack from from anywhere, uh, we we could be caught out. Yeah, and I think it's uh, quite the, concerning. The general consensus seems to be that we're too, as an independent nation, we're too reliant upon our nuclear capability now because in terms of a con- conventional war, we couldn't necessarily fight it on our own. Within NATO, we could, but then if we were to have some sort of dispute somewhere with somebody who didn't necessarily fall under the NATO umbrella, then um, I think we'd be in trouble. And I think that's where we are heavily reliant upon other nations. And looking at the way things are going in the States uh, in terms of Trump possibly being re-elected or even DeSantos at the next, mm. at the next election, they've got far lesser commitment to NATO maybe than past American presidents have. So it is a worrying development and I think we need to uh, we need to sort of keep our eye on that for the future. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed Riff Raff News. Please leave some comments on the app or on our Facebook page and uh, please subscribe and then episodes will drop automatically into your podcast feed. <laughs>